0: JBS presents the Hampton Synagogue's Author Discussion Series with Rabbi Avraham Bronstein.
1: My name is Glenn Dorskin. Welcome to the Hampton Synagogue. The Hampton Synagogue Author Discussion Series, now in its 27th year, is a cultural highlight of our summer season, both for members of our congregation and our many visitors from across the Hamptons. I am proud to serve as series chair, and it is my great pleasure to share our past season with you, our global congregation, in celebration of Jewish Book
0: Month. Uh, You had told me before that you wanted to begin tonight's program with a uh, short reading
1: from the book. Yeah. So why don't you set that up and tell us what you're going to be reading. I'm going to read uh, something from the introduction. To the book, Please. just to give you a kind of overall sense of, to his admirers, Elie Wiesel had the aura of a prophet. He spoke with eloquent simplicity about grand moral themes, balancing his paradoxical phrases so that listeners absorbed his message into their marrow. Whether explicitly or by suggestion, he summoned the personal history that had endured human malice in his flesh. As an orphan survivor and witness to Auschwitz and Buchenwald, he spoke with unusual authority. At times, his chiseled face had a haunted cast that the French novelist Francois Mauriac described as the look of Lazarus, the acolyte whom Jesus was said to have raised from the dead. And yet those who knew him well remarked how deeply human and unaffected he was. He loved to sing, to join with friends in the Hasidic melodies he had grown up with in Siget, Romania, where he was born to join in whirling Hasidic wedding dances. He savored the quirks and flavors of Yiddish, his first language, and left to laugh at a salty Yiddish joke. Though he walked with kings and queens at the climax of his career, he remained a man of modest taste. He hated wearing tuxedos, took minimal interest in financial matters. And as his son, Alicia told me, he preferred instant coffee to the brewed variety because that, that was what he had been accustomed to in Europe. In old age, he told friends he wanted to be remembered not for his prestigious honors, or as the author of a landmark book about the Holocaust, or as a speaker on the world stage, but simply as the teacher he had been for more than 40 years. Wiesel was a complex figure. He had a sensitive ego that sometimes made it hard for him to work in groups like the council that built the United States Holocaust Museum in Washington. Although he inspired the creation of the museum, he could not manage or abide the competitive jousting In the council, and ultimately resigned his chairmanship before construction had started. There might have been been more than a smidgen of calculation in some of his other, of his nobler actions and speeches that served him and his cause. As the novelist Stain Rosenbaum wrote after his death, soft-spoken but with the instincts of a Broadway press agent, he knew how to leverage a story and deliver the perfect soundbite. Yet Elie Wiesel became the torchbearer, not just for the survivors. He was the most admired ambassador of the Jewish faith in the world as well as a voice of conscience as many of the places where human rights were trampled. He expanded his message to draw attention to other genocides and to warn the world that the lessons of the Holocaust had not been learned, that ethnic hatred, persecution of vulnerable minorities, and mass violence persisted in sundering humanity. He was, as I said in the obituary I wrote for the New York Times, defined not so much by the work he did as by the gaping void he filled. In the aftermath of the German systematic massacre of the Jews of Europe, no voice had emerged to drive home the enormity of what had happened and how it had changed mankind's conception of itself and of God. But by the sheer force of his personality and his gift for the haunting phrase, Mr. Wiesel, Wiesel, who had been liberated from Buchenwald as a 16-year-old with the indelible tattoo A7713 on his arm, gradually exhumed the Holocaust from the burial ground of the history books.
0: Thank you. It's um, a beautifully written book, as Glenn mentioned in the introduction. Um, I think so, all of the reviewers think so as well. I'm just wondering, how does it come that you wrote the book? Um, Did you have an idea to write it? Did somebody come to you and write it? Uh, What was the inspiration for
1: you to take this project on? I I, I knew Elie Wiesel. Um, I I first uh, encountered him Uh, when I went with my parents to the annual uh, Holocaust commemoration at Temple Emmanuel and other places, and he was a wonderful speaker, Um, you know, an eloquent speaker, and I I knew that, but then I saw him when when the post sent me to to, uh, cover the 73 Mideast War. Um, I I, I I, I uh, flew to Israel And on the plane was Elie Wiesel and his friend Sigmund Strachlitz. As a journalist? I was there as a journalist. He was there because he was going to deliver uh, medicine to Israeli soldiers. So um, he was sitting next to to Strachlitz, and the two of them were humming Yiddish melodies. Mm -hmm. I remember their shoes were off, their ties were were loosened, and there was something so um, warm about this scene that I, and I realized, you know, it's a human being, and and it's and and it's not not just a a, a grand orator or, or he, he's there's a person there. So I, I was attracted to the idea of doing a, a biography at, at some point, and it turned out I, I had been asked to write his uh, uh, his advance obituary for the Times, um, and I, I I'd written a profile of him. So when I retired from the Times, just in looking for a project, I thought. This would be there had not been an adult biography of of uh, of Elie Wiesel up to that point. Did you find that surprising that you
0: were filling that void, first um, journalist?
1: I, I do. I, I find it surprising, but it, you know, the, uh, Elie wrote uh, two memoirs about his own life, mm-hmm. so uh, you know, in in, in a way, he, he he there was there wasn't this great need for for for, for a biography.
0: What you're saying is that this biography really comes out of a bit of a relationship that developed over the course of many decades. So it's to, some, to some extent. To yeah. some extent. Okay. I'm still interested in the process of you writing the biography. Um, another question I had was, you just mentioned a little bit ago that you had certain acquaintance with Elie Wiesel over the course of his life. Right. You profiled him here and there. You've interviewed him. You spoke to him. You covered events where he was headlined where he was a headliner, uh, but you didn't really know him maybe that intimately as a friend. I'm wondering, over the course of writing this biography, there's so much material that was written about him or that features him or that he produced. He wrote 40 books and who knows how many articles and op-eds over the course of his life. How do you even start trying to write a biography that really tells the story of somebody? who has so much of a back story, so, um, so many words written about, so many words that they've written. There's so much material to go through.
1: So what's the process of writing that biography? Zischfleisch. Yeah. <laughs> How long did it take? You know, you, 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 just, you just do it day by day. Um, I mean, the first thing I did was I made a list of people I wanted to interview. Mm-hmm. You know, I ended up interviewing 40 to 50 people. Um, because uh, you know you want, to, you want to talk to them before it gets too late, mm-hmm. um, and um, I interviewed many of his friends, uh, people he worked with, um, you know, organizations he was involved with. Um, so yeah, uh, and then after after that, I sat down and and um, I, I essentially it it, it 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 moves in chronological fashion. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know. The arc of his life is what is so impressive. I mean, here he was a, a Hasidic boy. He grew up as a Hasidic boy in the, t- in the town of Siget, Romania. How did he become this world figure? That's what the book is really about. So you, you, you trace that arc. And you, one of the things you discover is the role of coincidence and chance in, in a person's life. For example, um, Wiesel had the good fortune, I mean, you know, I hate to use that term in such a terrible situation, but when, because he was an orphan at the end of the war, he ended up on a, on a, um, on a train of 400 orphans that, were, that Charles de Gaulle of France uh, agreed to take in. These orphans ended up in, an, uh, in a Jewish orphanage outside of Paris. Because they were outside of Paris when, they, when, when Elie Wiesel reached the age of like 19, he, he, he ended up in Paris and he went to the Sorbonne, studied at the Sorbonne, studied literature and philosophy. If, 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 if that hadn't happened, he might have ended up a Hasidic rabbi in the, in the town of Siget if there had been no war. But, but, but that kind of propelled him into a different, different arc.
0: Uh, I'm wondering also, in the, same, in the same vein, as you were doing all of this research and you were reconstructing his life in such meticulous fashion, uh, what really surprised you or jumped out at you that you hadn't known before that you thought you know, readers would be
1: particularly interested to know, new information about Elie Wiesel? W- Wiesel also had a very charming uh, tendency to over-dramatize. You asked me about surprises. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> He um, he has this uh, uh, in his memoirs. He has a, a section about his relationship with Isaac Bashevis Singer. The two of them were the stars of the of the Fovitz, the, old, the old Yiddish paper when it was a Yiddish paper. And um, they, they they befriended each other, and they, they would they would go home by subway uh, to um, uh, we, uh, Singer lived at eighty sixth Street at the Nord, and uh, Wiesel lived in uh, Riverside Drive at 103rd Street. And they'd take a subway up together and schmooze on the way up there. Um, but then they had a falling out. They, they had, each of them had done reviews and they didn't like the, the, others, the, the reviews they got from, 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 from this got so-called that. friend. So they, 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 they had a breakup. Uh, their friendship broke up. And then Wiesel, when describing the, situa- the relationship, says, you know, it was very sad when, we, when, uh, when Isaac B. Seversinger died, and so, f- so few people came to his funeral. I covered the funeral for the New York Times. The place was packed. <laughs> you know, it was his, 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 his last revenge. Right. <laughs>
0: Um, I want to get back a little bit more into Wiesel's biography, you know, the actual life story as you describe it. You spend a lot of time in the beginning of the book talking about his upbringing, which you've already mentioned tonight. Uh, You really need to understand if you want to understand what motivated him, what really made him tick, because you say in a few places in the book, obviously he left his small town in Romania. He left Siget when he was 13 years old. But in a larger sense, in a spiritual sense, he never really left there. So I was hoping you can talk a little bit more about his upbringing and the impact that had on him for the rest of his life.
1: Well, he he um, he, he was a student of the Talmud, and he uh, was an Orthodox Jew, and they, they might have uh, his early years in New York might have uh, strayed from that from that uh, mm-hmm. uh, tribe, uh, if I may call it that. Um, But he 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 pretty soon, uh, um, walked filling every day. Um, He um, uh, observed Shabbos. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there were some things he 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 may not have done that were uh, totally uh, orthodox. But you said he laughed, but he he never laughed. Right, right, exactly,
0: right.
1: And and uh, he when he was when he was uh, asked about. Uh, you know, when he talked about his anger at God for having allowed, you know, a million Jewish children to die and six million people to die. And and um, he said, he said, um, uh, if I'm angry at him, why should I take it out on Shabbos? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was his, that was line. his response. That's a good line. Yeah. He, in fact, he told me when, when I interviewed him for the Nobel, he said, You know, I've I've, I've spent my life being angry at God, and and, uh, and somehow that's brought me closer to him. So this was his kind of religious. And they never really reconciled, he and
0: God. Maybe a little bit. I remember he wrote an op-ed at some point, maybe in the '90s or the early 2000s. He did. He did. About I kind of reckon He's saying it was enough struggling against God. Right. Right. Time to reconcile. That's right. That's right. But that happened much later in his life. That's right. Right. I, I vaguely remember that. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, I think what we most people hear, here, here What most people here would consider to be his most famous work, right, which is *Night*. Um, in the book, you make the point that *Night* is a book that he was kind of ambivalent about being known for. He, he mentioned that. I forgot who he mentioned it to. But he kind of commented that he wrote 40 books in his life, and yet the only book people know him for is this one book. And it didn't even sell well when it first came out. Right? You point out that it only sold 1,000 copies the first year It's after now it sold 14 million. Now it's sold 14 million. Yeah, probably right. 15 million by now. Well, thanks to Oprah. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I'm wondering. And you talk about it a little bit in the book, but I'm sure in your research, what was it that made Night such like a runaway success over time? Why has it become more important over
1: time instead of less? It's a very vivid, painful description of, of, of life in, a, in, a, in the concentration camp, in Auschwitz mm-hmm. and Buchenwald. And you get a sense of the, um, the, the pain a, a child go, went through Having to watch his father uh, 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 get beaten, starve, and 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 and, and, and die, and, and to and to be so hungry, uh, and so burdened by by, by, by the father that he almost he almost wished that, that he, he was relieved when he finally died, and and felt guilty about that. Uh, I mean, you know, that kind of uh, very um, candid. Um, emotional, uh, response, uh, response made Knight stand out, uh, from other, from other, uh, uh, books of that sort. And don't forget, Knight also was one of the first mm-hmm. books that were written about, about the, the Holocaust. There was, um, <clears throat> after the war and after the initial revelations about what happened in the camps. There was a kind of a, a, a silence, that a shroud of silence that descended on, on the Holocaust. Very, very little was written. It wasn't even a history of the Holocaust until early '60s, the Raoul Hilberg book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I think I think many Jews felt guilty that they hadn't done more. American Jews felt guilty they hadn't done more to. Um, to rescue the Jews of Europe, uh, or put pressure on the Roosevelt administration to do so. Um, I think the survivors themselves felt no one could quite understand what they went through. And so between all, between all that, there was this, this you know, and the trauma of the event itself. So. Um, there was the silence about about uh,
0: the Holocaust. Is that the silence in the subtitle of the book, Elie Wiesel, Confronting right. the Silence?
1: Partly, yes, Partly. absolutely. But um, what changed was the, uh, the Eichmann trial, which gave people more of a knowledge of what happened, um, and also the 67 war because because of the 67 war and the, the miraculous victory in six days, uh, there was such a sense of pride among Jews that they began wanting to know more about their background. And uh, there you know, suddenly were books and, and, and films being made. And, and, uh, and here was a book that, that had come out already
0: mm-hmm.
1: a few years, five years before. And it took off. So it was like perfectly positioned once the circumstances That's right. were right. That's
0: right. And, and then it kind of snowballed. Right. You write about his involvement with the issue of Soviet Jewry, uh, Jews that were trapped in this former Soviet Union. And he got on board on that issue very, very early. I'm wondering, because you had mentioned his involvement with um, the issues in Cambodia, Vietnam. Was the Soviet Judaism issue kind of the first time that he stepped off the Holocaust as his only issue and began to broaden into other aspects of human rights?
1: Absolutely. In fact, he, he, he was, uh, his first, uh, first uh, really came to prominence as a result of the, the book The Jews of Silence, which, which was about the, the, the repression of Soviet Jews and um, and, and and his book um, became the textbook of the of, of the movement mm-hmm. and, and so uh, it was also very beautifully written and um, and, and told and and he, he, he did it by by um, by describing the exuberance of um, of the Soviet Jews, when they had a chance to celebrate a Jewish holiday like Simchat Torah, mm-hmm. for some reason Simchat Torah was not a holiday that the authorities uh, blocked, whereas, whereas the uh, other holidays were were, were 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 almost done secretly by Jews. This one they allowed the, the dancing with the Torah publicly, and he describes it beautifully, and you get a sense of, you know, you get a sense of um, how much, uh, how how much. Uh, the Soviet Jews who, who wanted to who wanted to be observant longed for the chance to do so, mm-hmm. and that comes across very very strongly. Uh, and this is part of Wiesel's arc, as you described it in the
0: beginning of this conversation. And definitely, you know, after he won his Nobel Prize in 1986, as you document, he becomes much more involved in a much wider array of issues. He takes on human rights issues on a much broader scale. He starts talking to world leaders on a much broader scale. Do you think he saw that as like a natural extension of what he was doing before? Or did he recognize that it was, he was kind of making a turn and he was now doing something different than just documenting and
1: bearing witness to what had happened? I think he realized that he'd achieved a certain stature mm-hmm. and that he needed to use that for good, for, for, for the benefit of, 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 of people all over the world. Um, so you know, uh, um, I mean, that's why he won the Nobel Prize because he he was a messenger to mankind, not just to to jewelry. Mm-hmm. He'd already established himself that way by the '80s. Yeah,
0: you know, by before he reached before. I'm sorry, he, he'd already established himself as that moral voice for for broader issues before he won the Nobel Prize. That's right. Before. I think this is a good time to talk about Bitburg, just to remind sure, everyone yeah. what happened, because this is really an example of him as that prophetic voice, right, speaking truth to power, but also at the same time, it was the confluence of so many circumstances that put him in the position to be able to do that. Okay. So, uh, why don't at, you share the story? That,
1: at, at that point, Riesel had been the head of the council that created the museum, and that's a, that's a whole story in, in and of the, itself. The, the American Holocaust museum. The American Holocaust Museum in Washington. Um, So what year is this? This is 1985 is when when, uh, we're talking. I think he won the Nobel in 86. So uh, let's see. Um, Reagan announced that he was was going to visit Germany at the invitation of Helmut Kohl, the chancellor. And it turned out that one of the things he was going to do was to lay a wreath at a military cemetery. Many Jewish leaders were upset that he was going to lay a wreath at a military cemetery. But then it turned out that not only was it a military cemetery, but there were 49 graves of SS men buried there. And there there was uh, uh, hundreds of letters written, by, by, and not just by Jewish leaders, but by union members and congressmen. A lot of people were trying to convince Reagan to not do this. And everyone then thought, uh, everyone waited for Wiesel to, to make a statement about this. Well, it turned out that Wiesel had won a Congressional Medal of, of, um, of Achievement, I think the the, the the Congressional Gold Medal of Achievement, uh, which is awarded by Congress, but it's traditionally given by the president at the White House to the recipient. So. Reagan had to give Wiesel this medal two weeks before he left for Bitburg. And um, Wiesel, um, uh, well, first of all, the White House decided um, they realized this was going to be a PR disaster. So the first thing they did was they changed the the room at the White House from the East Room, which seats several hundred people, to the Roosevelt Room, which seats only 40 people. Mm -hmm. And among the 40 people that Wiesel invited were the uh, two editors of the New York Times, Abe Rosenthal <laughs> and Martha Arthur Gelb. So he was shrewd that way. Mm-hmm. And he, he then, he then um, confronted Reagan. And nobody had seen him, seen, seen a, uh, um, someone uh, talk to the president in that kind of confrontational manner. Though, so if you see the videotape, it's really a, a very sensitive. Uh, uh, the way he talks to Reagan is a is, is very sensitive um, criticism. Right, he not, says,
0: This is not your place. Your place is with
1: the yeah, victims. Your place is, is with, with the victims. Which is like such a devastating this, line. This place is not your place, Mr. President. Your place is with the victims. And he, he even begins by saying, You know, it, I, I can't tell you how pained I am that I have to tell you this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lovely—I mean, you should, you, if you have a chance, you should all see the YouTube video. It's really—it's uh, um, it's, a, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful moment.
0: It's funny if you think about it, because Wiesel may have learned something from that moment because he developed kind of a habit of putting presidents on the spot that you know, kind of repeated itself. Right? I think he had a moment like that with Bill Clinton. He had a moment like that with Barack Obama. he did um, he did. Um, this, this became something that repeated maybe that's part of his persona also. He found ways that he found things that worked, and he kept finding like what, he kept finding positions or circumstances to repeat those patterns in, like in future
1: generations also I, I, Well, he, you know he did, he did um, confront Clinton at the opening of the museum uh-huh. uh, in Washington. He told him you know. Um, People are dying in Bosnia. Why are we letting this happen? This is another, this is another uh, genocide. And Cl- Clinton didn't react immediately, but, but within a year, they, they, we intervened. Now, was it, was it Elie Wiesel who, who, who influenced that did this? He had this moral leadership because he endured the Shoah.
0: And enduring the Shoah and being able to speak about it so passionately and so eloquently, he was able to arise as a a moral voice, as a moral leader, not
1: just about the Shoah, but about so many other things. Well, well, I think what you're getting at is is that... um, Wiesel was a singular figure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Almost no one else had had his kind of combination of uh, having suffered uh, haven't been educated. I mean, you know, most of the survivors, when they came here, like my parents, took the first job they could get because they, had, they needed to support their families, their young families. They, you know, in the DP camps, uh, um, the survivors had married and had children. Mm-hmm. And they came over here, you know, they all were of a certain age. They came over here with small children and and they had to go work because they weren't, you know, they, were, they, they, they weren't the uh, generous welfare programs we have today. Uh, and not that, that they would have taken them, and, and the, the, the Jewish agencies were, were, uh, would, get, would, would provide some funds to get to, to, to tide you over, but not, not for, 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 for very long periods of time. Mm-hmm. So uh, p- people had to go get jobs, and, and people went, ended up working in factories and in, in, in uh, you know, opening candy stores if, if they had a, a bit of a nest egg. Um, so uh, Wiesel... Had been had been educated at the Sorbonne. He um, he had he, been a writer because he'd been a journalist. He, um, he he had he had a facility for languages. Right. Uh, his Talmudic um, uh, training gave him a very um, complex uh, way of looking at the world. Um, all that came together to produce Elie Wiesel, you know, and he also had a certain uh, look, that the, the chiseled face, the, the, the wispy hair, I mean, it all, it all came together to produce this, this very charismatic figure, mm-hmm. and no one else could match that among the survivors. There were, ma- there were many active survivors, you know, Ben Mead and, and Norbert Walheim, but no one had his, his charisma.
0: Again, it's like a almost, you know, it's a confluence of circumstance that kind of created him the way that he was. Right? It's like Wiesel said that the to hear testimony, right, makes you a witness also. Right? But different people can hear testimony and come to different conclusions. Right? Wiesel was very Wiesel was very good at saying, This was my experience and this is what it means nowadays. Maybe his legacy is that. We've all heard his experience, but now we all get to argue about what it means.
1: Right. What What I worry about more is, is the growth of anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and and, um, and Holocaust denial um, is part of that. Um, and I, you know, I'm, uh, this is something that I haven't. Uh, I, I don't know what you do about that. I, I, um, Except to to make sure that every time that someone lies about it, you point out what the truth is. Okay, Joe Berger, thank you so much.